This show is brought to you by our sponsor, Bitheads. They are a staple in the tech community I come from and have done incredible work over the past 18 years with some of the largest brands in the world, including The Simpsons, Tapped Out, Box, Optimal Payments, The New York Times, among many, many, many others. All told, they've built over 500 solutions from enterprise to entertainment. I'm proud to have them as a part of Untether.tv. Please support us by supporting them. Go to bitheads.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Untether.tv. I'm your host and founder, Rob Woodbridge. Today, we have Henry Lawson, who is the CEO of a company called Autograph. These are the company, this is the company that says that in under one minute, get this, in under one minute, without knowing your name, your email address, or any personally identifiable information, they can figure out 5,500 dimensions about you. Things like your age, your income, your likes, and your dislikes at over 90% accuracy. Are we all that transparent? They recently put beacons in every store on Regent Street in London, and we are here to understand why and what the impact has been. Welcome, Henry. Thanks for being a part of Untether.tv. Hi, thank you very much, and thank you for having me. So uh, you are a Brit, obviously, in Seattle, running this company called Autograph. What is Autograph? Okay, so um, Autograph basically is a company that allows people to express their preferences and what they're interested in uh, and to take control of those preferences within under a minute. And the technology we've been developing for the last three years, we, we founded the company in March of 2011 here in sunny Seattle. Um, don't believe about <laughs> either my home country or Seattle that they rain all the time. It's the blue sky is beautiful. Um, and hence why our logo has all this light blue on it. Um, There's influence there, isn't there? Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. And all I see on the picture, if you're not watching this in video, he's wearing a blue shirt and behind him is blue in the windows as well. It's, as blue it's, it's beautiful. It's, there's not a cloud in the sky. So anyway, um, so we founded Autograph in, in March of 2011. And what we did was to set out to let consumers control the way in which they express their preferences in all manner of different digital spaces. So in, uh, in, in when they go shopping on the net, in when they actually look and see media on the net, in when they actually go and do banking applications and all these different things. Um, in every case, there's a certain amount of intelligence around it. There's a whole load of big data around these things. But the person that has no voice in that is the consumer. And we set out right from the outset to give the consumer the voice and the control. And over the course of the last three years, we've proven um, that consumers actively engage with this stuff that they actually enjoy doing so. Only a very small single digit number of uh, percentage of people don't choose to participate. The vast, vast majority do participate. And when they do so, they give much better information. And most importantly, they respond an order of magnitude more frequently than if it was just something that came, if, if it was a recommendation based upon uh, a black box that they don't understand. So, so can you can no. you walk through a perfect like an example of this before I don't want to get into Regent Street yet, but I want to know like sure. um, you know how, how does a consumer uh, interact with Autograph? Sure. So we have technology that's based around uh, iOS, is built on Android as well as based on uh, HTML5. So you can sometimes find it at a Wi-Fi logon screen. You can sometimes find it in a 
um, in a website, but you can also mo mo most likely you're going to find it in a, in, a, in a mobile app. When you go into that app, you're asked whether you would like to personalize your experience. Now, the first in the current world, the first time that you're asked about that, your chances are you're going to be asked, are you male or female? What's your date of birth? Uh, what's your home zip code? What's your email address? We don't ask any of those questions. We just simply say, here's 40 brands or TV programs or movies. And SWOT, which is a, a, a brand name that we have, which is swiping and voting, which is moving a tile on a screen. And if you move it up, you like it. If you move it down, you don't like it. As people SWOT those 40 pieces of content, we have data in the background that allows us to build up a profile. So first of all, we get an incredibly accurate profile in about 30 seconds. Secondly, we share what we've learned with the customer. That's, what, that's the real point of differentiation of autograph. This is something that the customer has created, hence the word autograph. But most importantly, we are actually sharing that back with the customer to say, this is what we've learned about you. If you agree with it, that's great. If you don't, please delete it or change it or add to it or do things with it. So we enable complete transparency around that process where the customer actually understands what's being said about them. And then we start to serve content. And that varies enormously, whether it's a media application, where it's things you might watch on TV tonight, through a retail application like a Westfield or a Regent Street, where it's these are the kinds of things you might like to shop for in the mall or on the shopping street today. Um, it can be in a, in, in, a, in a banking situation. It can be these are the merchant offers available for you to use with your credit card today. Uh, in, a, in a carrier's context, it can be here's all the great things your carrier is bringing to you, including the opportunity to win tickets to this concert or, uh, or a new calling plan or an accessory or whatever it might be. The consumer, of course, wants the back end and what we do is we create an incredibly uh, quick and simple and game-like front end to enable them to get to a much better back end. So the consumer benefits enormous, which is why we're seeing so continuing such high levels of use of the of, of our applications. So you're you're basically asking them forty questions, but you're doing it in in, in kind of a, in a game, and uh, it's fun for them to do it. Is yeah. that is that the, the gist in, of it? In many ways, we're actually asking them five and a half thousand questions. <laughs> boil down to 40 questions you're absolutely right boil down to 40 questions because the reality is if if, if rob if i if i ask you you know do you like cbc uh the answer is obvious from your t-shirt you're yes. you're quite happy to tell me you're very happy to tell me that you're actually a fan of cbc well if you actually watch cbc then or listen to cbc then that says something about you which is distinct from someone else and, you know, I might be able to see in the background that you've got a, an interest in cars or an interest in these things. Though All of those are very, very straightforward to be able to then uh, make further attributions about you. You know, we've discovered that people that uh, drive Mercedes-Benz uh, love uh, Italian food but don't tend to like sushi. Well, you know, those are seemingly completely unrelated items, but the reality is we can actually predict them extremely accurately from, from our process. How, how, do you, so how do you come up with the questions? But how do you come up with those questions that, that, are, that will, will determine those characteristics? Right. So we have a, a data science team, um, you know, PhD data scientists um, from the best universities in the world that uh, are developing all the time the... Uh, tiles that we can actually ask people based on and then we do it through a combination of data that we buy data that we uh, look at from the use of the application data that and surveys that we commission we're able to attribute a whole load of data around each of those tiles 
what the the clever bit is that we've got five over five thousand tiles that we can use is in this particular application which tiles should we be using and the answer is we have a data science team that will look for the 40 tiles which is about the right number that the customer's interested in but is quick enough for them to be able to get to the end which of the 40 tiles should we use in a group to be able to discriminate really accurately what is it that drives this consumer and so there's a lot of data science goes into that as to as to what are internally consistent sets of brands or sets of tv programs that enable us to do that you know it, it's uh, so I, it, using math i don't even understand <laughs> it's so fascinating because like 40 questions is that uh, is that a, is that a number that is um you know just the right number before a consumer has a breaking point that they're not going to answer 41 or is it the yep. number that is going to give you the fullest uh, um view or vantage of what that consumer is interested in? So we, we did quite a lot of testing, focus group testing beforehand, and what we found was people, f when, we, when we gave them 30, then consumers actually sat there and went, well, that was, that was over very easily. I, I'd have done more. And when we gave them 50, they were starting to slow down and, and, and they were, you know, we had more people dropping out. 40 we found to be about the optimal number where you can, you can go through that process, you can ask them 40 questions, and the 40 questions actually gives them uh, gives us enough data. The reality is we can actually build an autograph based on between 6 and 12 SWOTs, but um, 40 builds a really representative set. The more you do, the more accurate the profile becomes. And do, do you uh, integrate this into other people's apps, other people's websites, uh, yeah. and your own apps as well? Yeah. So this is, this is a, an SDK, an, an API, a service that they buy from you? All, all of the above. So it's actually a cloud-based service. Um, it is an SDK that sits inside uh, other people's applications. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a client will ask us to write the whole application, so we can actually do that, and, and that happens about half the time, realistically. Um, and then there's a series of APIs to enable uh, us to be able to pull the, 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 the content that they want to actually deliver into the application and serve it. Uh, we also have a whole load of APIs around reporting that allows us to be able to tell you for each piece of inventory what the performance was, to be able to tell you uh, what, is the, what are the characteristics of the various uh, anonymous autographs associated with your, with your particular brand. But our clients are the shopping malls and the carriers and the, and, and the TV companies and so on. And the outcome of this, all of these questions answered, all of this uh, you know, kind of projection of who I am based on the questions that I've, that I've answered, what is the outcome for these, for these retailers? What's their interest in this? So their interest is fundamentally um, they actually know much less than the major retailers. So if you look at the retail space, loyalty programs work really well in one part of the retail space. They work really well in the supermarket mm -hmm. because in the supermarket, you go back to the supermarket every week, you buy a whole heterogeneous set of, of products and that allows them to build a very good profile on you based on the loyalty program. If you're looking at a loyalty program for a shoe store or you've got a loyalty program for men's clothes or you've got a loyalty program for the hardware store, your visits to that hardware store are so infrequent and what you buy is so homogeneous that they're not terribly useful for acquiring data. What happens here is that by doing business with the mall, the mall actually gains a picture of its consumers, the consumers walking through the mall, not just the legs walking through the infrared beam as they walk through the entrance, which is what a lot of companies do, but I'm talking about a really detailed, in-depth perspective on what their customers are. And as a result, they actually are leapfrogging the, um, the, 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 what we see 
uh, what, they, what their retailers see, as a result of which they now understand and can turn around to their retailers and say, look, this is ways in which we can add value for you. Whether that is retail offers associated with a mall, gift cards that run across the mall, events that are compatible with the kinds of people who are going to the mall, um, all the other things in which the, in which the mall owner actually provides service. And, and you know, Regent Street is a mall. Let's not make any mistake. It's a very glamorous mall. It's got 130 retailers. It's owned by Her Majesty the Queen, um, and so it's you know it's it's very much very much a glamorous mall. But at the end of the day, it's 130 retailers flying in close formation. I'm fascinated by this, and I, I want to understand your background before we get into Regent Street, because uh, and, and which we'll spend the the brunt of uh, the rest of our conversation on. Is it uh, you know how do you end up here? Right. Uh, I mean, why? Why this company? Why doing this? Yeah. You know, um, what was it in your in your background, or was there a background here that led you down this path? Sure. Sure. No, absolutely, there was. So, so um, after business school, I actually joined a company um, called Interet, which was actually at the time the largest radio ad sales house. And I, I spent four years in New York City, falling in love with the media industry. It's easy to do. Yes. Um, you know, fascinating place, and radio is just the most amazing medium. But that. That really set me up for a lifetime in the media industry. I then spent 14 years as the uh, president of Donovan Data Systems, which is the largest data processor in the media buying industry, processing about $85 billion worth of media every year. And as I spent the time from 1995 through 2009, I watched this industry, which was 0% of the media buy when I started, become 25% of the media buy, the industry being digital, basically, digital online web search and, 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 and even, even online video. But I also watched the consumer response rate to digital ads grow from 7% to 0.7% to 0.07%. And I sort of looked at that and I said, look, the money's going in, but the results aren't coming out. We've got to do a better job than that. And developed a thesis, which was that we would be able to connect people with what they were interested in much, much better than the industry does today. And if you could get the consumer's help to point you to the needle in the haystack of that data that was, that was burgeoning and growing, then we could do a much better job. And that's what, that, that's what we've really dedicated ourselves to over the last three years. I mean, I just, it's fascinating that uh, you, you look at those opportunities and as, as the decline in the digital reach, not reach, but the, the effectiveness of digital yes. advertising, yep. you think there's opportunity there, right? And everybody yep. else is running from it. Um, you know, or accepting it, and I don't accept the fact that 0.07 percent is a is a successful click through right. rate or engagement rate. Right. Um, so, and that led you here three years ago. Is the vision the same as the company was back then? Uh, absolutely, it is. The core vision is exactly the same. Um, we spent the first year basically evaluating, proving that what we had thought we could do, we could do, and building out some prototypes. We spent the second year basically proving its commercial performance because you know it's all very well to have this vision that you can go and do these things but if it doesn't actually generate a commercial return then you know I'm gonna have upset investors on my hands and so on um, and then the last year we've really spent in serious business development and, and Westfield was the first uh, mall company to come on it's the it's it's one of the largest mall companies in the world and, and, and one of the top 10 in the US and that's been incredibly exciting working with Westfield which is an Australian company a real uh, forward-looking company that's done uh, an amazing job around its malls and, and wanted to be at the leading edge of innovation and, and, and called on us to help them with that. Um, so we spent the last year doing uh, business with them, business with a mobile carrier 
the largest mobile carrier in the world by by revenue at least. Um, and then we've also spent uh, time obviously with Regent Street and we've got a number of other clients that we're actually bringing to market right now. Um, but the biggest thing for us is we didn't know when we started that this would work. And I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to say, I'm relieved to say, not only does it work, but it works in spades. It's, it, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. Um, when, you, when you watch consumers coming back, we get about 20, 25% of consumers coming back inside the applications that we've written for our clients. We see them coming back month after month after month. And their autographs steadily getting more and more refined. And people feel like they own these autographs. That's the, it's a, it's a, it's a, a wonderful thing to see. How did you how did you prove this? So did you how did you find the companies that were willing to test this test its uh, you know it, its efficacy uh, for driving higher revenue for them? Yeah, well I think it's a couple of a couple of secrets to that. One was to do a lot of testing and to show that testing. So we tested uh, with a financial services company that already has merchant offers in its program and outperformed what they were doing by a factor of ten. That's <laughs> very compelling. I can't tell you. What the name of the company is, but I can tell you that that it was you know it's a company that everybody knows. It's a household name, and and they were very impressed with that. Um, so so first of all was doing a lot of testing, and then the other one is actually finding people in the marketing industry that are at the same time forward looking, and actually understand where things are going, mm -hmm. but also to be able to take a risk to step away from what they're doing now. You know, the people who are prepared to uh, go with that analogy of, you know, if it's working, break it. Um, and, and, you know, Miff Ryan, who's our client at Westfield, is an incredibly forward-looking Australian CMO who just said, this is, uh, this is the way I want to approach this. I want to be completely consumer-centric, completely consumer-friendly. I know that this is going to change. Uh, and sure enough, uh, she went for it. Uh, and we're deeply grateful to her. In the same way, our client at... Um, at our carrier client is is you know a um, lady who runs M Commerce and was absolutely prepared to take a risk on what we do. Of course, now our clients coming on are not taking risks. Actually, they're reaching out and contacting us over our website to say, "Heard what you're doing with X, Y, and Z," and as a result, want to actually get in touch to go and can do similar things. But I mean, for Westfield, how did you how did you convince, or was there convincing? How did you get the contact? That would lead down this path where they where you'd be putting right in front of the right person. Um, the, I mean, an awful lot of knocking on doors. Frankly, an awful lot of knocking on doors. You know, and getting to, you you just know you've got the right person when you've got someone who's prepared to break the mold. When we're breaking the mold, you have to have a client who's prepared to break the mold. And if you've got someone who isn't prepared to break the mold, my my only advice to a startup is to just walk away. And, and go and find someone who is prepared to break the mold because you can just spend weeks and hours. There's a very large um, business not a million miles away from my headquarters where we basically had to set a clock. And we set a clock and just said, right, you know, we'll absolutely talk to you. We will do as many meetings as you want over the course of the next five weeks. And at the end of the five weeks, we're either going to agree to heads of terms, we're either going to have something and we're going to be working on it, or we're going to walk away. And we did indeed get to the end of the five weeks and walked away. And you know, walking away from 
you know, a very large local company is a really, really hard thing to do. It's, a, it's you know, it, 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 because there's always the possibility. They're always the biggest around. But you do have to do that. You have to be pretty brutal about it. And, and we were, and we're delighted. And actually, now we're hiring people from that company. Uh, <laughs> I, ironically, we're now hiring people pretty aggressively from that company. So... Uh, that's it's exciting. It's a, it's a good lesson, and and you, you know the ability to say no is a, still the most powerful thing that a company has, whether that's for investment, whether that's for you know setting a timeline on, on client interactions, because they can they can they can take you down a path that uh, if you spend months on it, it could it could cause some serious damage yep. to the to the company. Yep. Did it and, and, and Go ahead. not intending to the people no. the people you're dealing with are not intending to. It's just the way that companies work. Yeah. Did you did you did it matter what size of a company it was that you were working with in the early tests? Could you have gone with a small firm and, and shown great uh, great benefit to using your software? Or did it, did it have to have a certain threshold, a certain size? That's interesting. So so we focused on the sort of number one, two, three players in each of our marketplaces. You know, we were the largest carrier in the world, the largest mall owner outside North America. Uh, we are with um, the largest uh, uh, financial services um, service company, um, and and we're actually with we're working with a, a number of the largest um, broadcasters in their in their area, net publish web publishers in their area. Um, I think in all cases, the best case study is a company that everybody's heard of. Mm -hmm. If you have a case study with a company that no one's heard of then they're not terribly interested in case study. So I think it's very well worth for, the, for those early tests, those early first and second, those, those, those pathfinder clients, you really need to make sure that you've found companies that everyone else is going to respect. It's, it's much easier, frankly, to do a test with a company that no one's heard of. Yes. But if I think about what, because we actually started off by doing the business ourselves, we wrote a B2C application and we signed up a whole load of affiliate deals. Um, but as I think about the resonance that had with our major branded clients, it just didn't have anywhere near the same resonance as turning around and saying, look, we've got this financial services company, we did this. Clients, uh, consumers responded 10 times more often with us than they did with the company itself. Uh, therefore, um, which one are you interested in as a case study? And the answer was always, really, they did that? That worked 10 times? And, and it's just, it, it, you, you, you really build your credibility on the back of uh, the company you keep and, um, and we're, we're really pleased to keep excellent company do you, did you did you um, I, I don't know if you can answer this or not but I'm gonna put it out there did you charge for that or did you were you willing to to uh, you, you know sacrifice revenue to prove a point to these companies at the beginning I I have a wonderful and supportive chairman who uh, <laughs> and I hope he watches this but I, no, I have a wonderful and supportive chairman and he, he was very clear paid for pilots are the only way to go and so we 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 only do paid pilots because frankly um you know what happens if if you're given something you know let's say somebody walks up to you in the street and gives you something for free gives you a little shutch key or something yeah. in, in the street you don't value it the same as if you'd gone in and spent a few bucks on something and and exactly the same thing happens in corporate life when somebody's actually had to take a piece of their budget or their seniors budget and actually use it for this then they're really interested in the, in the results, and the, and, the, and the results have some value to them. Whereas if you've just um, prostrated yourself in front of them and said, we'll do it for nothing, then it kind of gets valued that way. 
And so I would always advise people to do paid pilots, aside from which the cash flow is really important. Cash is good. Cash is good. <laughs> cash, is, cash is really important. Well, I mean, it, I guess it, what it does is it obviously, as you said, it commits them to you guys. Um, uh, does it slow down the process for the for the trial? Uh, and 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 a, and, a, and a portion of that question is 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 there expectation for those size of companies that it is a paid trial? Um, yes, it does slow things down. Yes, it does increase their commitment. But these companies all have budgets around. It's one of the reasons why you've always got to aim high as well in your BD. So, you know, our BD is aimed at CMOs and CEOs. And those are, those are the two levels that we call on. If you get below that level, it tends to be budget keepers who hold budgets for projects that they know about. Well, we come out of left field, so they're never going to have a budget for what we do. So you have to get to the, to the sort of innovation budgets at the higher level. Um, but those innovation budgets exist. Don't be greedy. Don't try and make huge amounts of money off these things. But you can build a very interesting um, uh, case study and not have it slowed down too much. And, and, and charge, as I say, something reasonable that helps to defray your costs. But don't, don't, don't expect to make that a profit center. That's right, because that's what happens when you prove the point with them. Then that's your case study to leverage and, and then Correct. start going after new clients. So. And we're seeing clients renew now with with very significant uplifts in their in their spend with us. Do you tell them that, like, you know, is it expressly uh, written that says this is a paid pilot project at this rate? But should when we succeed in showing you this kind of lift, um, yep. it's going to cost you this next year. Do you do, are yes. you ex you're yes. explicit with that? Yeah, a hundred percent. And 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 actually, very often these are the KPIs we have to step over, agreed and determined beforehand. Okay. So that so that when you get to the other side of it, it's like we, we you know we achieve what you were looking for. Now let's talk about that contract. Right. Now the money starts to roll in, and I think that that's interesting. Yeah. You know, I, I like the idea of paid paid pilots, obviously. But so then, how did you how did you land Regent Street? Now, for, for those who don't know Regent Street, who've never been to London and walked down Regent Street, these are the these are the this is as you said, it's owned by the Queen. It's a mall, but it's in a street. It's you know, it's a street, but yep. it has it has the biggest, most recognizable fashion brands on the planet, all on sure. this street. Hundred hundred shops, hundred thirty shops down the street. Hundred thirty shops. Um, so, walk us through that story about how how Regent Street appeared. How did you get the Queen as a client? <laughs> Which is exactly what it is, yeah, right? Just, you knock on the door of Buckingham Palace. <laughs> She's so, fine. Hey, She's open to visitors. Anybody? <laughs> anybody? Right? How did you do that? No, How did you get the Queen it, as a client? Was, it was actually um, it, the, there is a bit of serendipity, and you you know the old phrase about you make your own luck is 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 absolutely true. I happened to be at a lunch, sat next door to uh, the lady who's the CEO of. Um, Regent Street Association, which is the trade association of those retailers on Regent Street. And Annie is a, she's a pistol, she's a fantastic woman, uh, has had a fantastic career in marketing and is now running Regent Street Association. So she's in charge of marketing the, the Regent Street, both nationally and internationally. And sat down with her, talked to her about what we do. And she said, you know, this is exactly what I'm looking for. I'm not happy at all with where we are from a digital perspective. Come and talk to us. And that was in November of last year. And by um, uh, about March, April of this year, we were agreeing terms. Now, the next thing you have to do is to extend it from Annie, whose, who's, you know, Regent Street Association is a, is, a, is, a, is a membership association of those retailers. But you then have to extend it into the Crown Estate, which is Her Majesty the Queen's um, uh, property company. And we had to get it to, 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 to the Crown Estate. The, the wonderful thing 
is that from this street that was built originally started by George III and finished by George IV in 1826, from this street, which is arguably the oldest sort of prestige shopping street in the world, my French friends will disagree with that, but, but you know, we'll leave that to one side. Um, the oldest shopping street in the world, you, know, you think crusty bits of Portland stone and all these things, and the reality is that the Crown Estate is one of the most innovative uh, uh, landlords in the UK and, and, and actually proved to be completely innovative and, and, and very much behind what we were doing. So, so there was no strife. There was no challenge to close these guys. It just started with, uh, you know, a happenstance meeting at lunch, and then uh, it, just around the right time, the right place. Yeah, there's there's always there's always a challenge, right? There's, you know, it's, it's it, it, yeah. I, I I make it sound terribly easy, and then I sort of sit and go, oh my god, we wait a second. Every, yeah. every word of a thirty-page stack of stack of legal documents, but. No, I mean, they've been a, a delight, as Westfield, they've been a delightful client to work with, uh, really thinking through what they can do, really making it, making it uh, uh, bigger. So one of the issues for, for Regent Street is that over half of their visitors come from overseas, the main ones being the US, uh, France, and China. And so what we're doing is actually building the application so that it's actually changeable to those languages, um, and obviously Chinese and French, and, and, and being able to actually use it that way. Um, so there's a lot of things like that that you need to build in to, to, to achieve their business goals. But the crucial thing is to actually ask the, customer, you know, ask the client what are their business goals, what are they actually trying to achieve, um, and connecting those to their personal goals. One of the fascinating things here is that you, you've gotten so much, uh, you know, from a business standpoint, uh, a lot of PR in non-traditional uh, retail outlets, right? So we're not talking about like, you know, GQ and all that kind of stuff that these these brands on Regent Street would would have um, have ended up in. But you're talking about like, uh, you know, um, Media Post and re, you know, yep. all these Recode, all of these technology yep. outlets yep. that are increasing the so. Was that part of this plan as well? Was really that this is a this is a great way to reach new customers through the technology, not so much the retail outlets? Um, the, the the answer is yes, and the answer <laughs> is that we were we were but we were very consistent both in media as well as in in retail. Mm -hmm. That you know, it's all very well the whole industry, our industry, the kind of world we move in, focuses on digital media focuses on online commerce, you know, whether it's m-commerce or e-commerce, when the reality is that 80% of the dollars that are spent out there are spent in a bricks and mortar store, and 75% of the advertising out there in media is spent on offline media. Yes. How do you help those industries to compete and to compete on a level playing field with the digital industries? So what we've done effectively with, um, with Regent Street is we've instrumented Regent Street and a combination of the beaconing that we've done and the autographs that the consumer creates creates an environment where any of those Regent Street retailers can compete in a bricks and mortar environment on a completely level playing field with e-commerce. You know, e-commerce is great because you've got the click stream that follows somebody so you know what they've looked at, you know what Google searches they've done in the last few days and as a result you can actually serve up the right stuff on the website. Well we're doing exactly the same thing analogous thing for the retailers in that in that bricks and mortar environment and in the same way we've got a whole load of technology that we're putting together at the moment for a client which is actually around helping them to make offline media decisions based on the autographs in the online world and 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 actually helping the offline world is very unsexy and untraditional and, and and traditional uh, but it's still where the bulk of the dollars are 
Yeah, I mean, I do a, a, a daily show with uh, Chuck Martin, who's an author, and, and uh, he spends most of his time in the mobile retail, mobile commerce space. And, and you're right, he, he talks about up to 90% of transactions happen in the store, right? Yeah. And all commerce. Yep. So no yep. matter what we do everywhere else, they still have to drive people to the store because that's where people make up, that's where the transactions happen. Whether or not, you know, there's so much that influences the decision to walk into the store uh, but the transactions are happening. That's one metric. But I think we should just take a, a, a step back because to explain what you did for those who haven't heard of what you did right. with, on Regent Street. So you you've got you put beacons in every one of these stores. Correct. So so these are these are beacons. Um, so that's from the numbers that I got. It's 180 beacons in 130 stores. Is that Correct. is that accurate? So. This is the marriage of digital and and terrestrial. That's what you're trying to, to match here. So what, what are right. the purpose of the beacons in the stores? Right. So the, the, the purpose of the beacons are to alert, uh, basically to provide a, um, a lighthouse by which the app, as the consumer's walking up and down Regent Street, by which the app is listening to, sees that lighthouse and interprets it. The important thing that I really want to emphasize is that the beacons do nothing but transmit a hex code that is then interpreted by the application. So the, the, there is no spying going on through the beacons. It is all about the application and the, the application that the consumer controls. So as they walk up, that application is walking past 180 different doorways on Regent Street. That's why the difference between 180 and 130, because some stores have more than one door. Yeah. And as they walk up, then the application sits there and says, ah, right, I am hearing Austin Reed Shirts Department. Interesting. That's a, that's a tailor's. It's a very traditional British tailor. Um, and I'm walking, you know, it's clear that we're next to Austin Reed Shirt Department. Now, the autograph that's been created in this application is this likely, how likely is it that this Austin Reed shirt is relevant to this particular uh, consumer? We take a look at that, we calculate a relevant score, and if the relevant score is above a threshold, then we send out a push message to the application to say, alert the person that there is something inside the Regent Street uh, Austin Reed shirts store, which they really should be aware of. And that's what we, that's what, that's how it works. And you made a point in a, a completely valid point in in in, in your show. Uh, a it happens. Of weeks it ago. happens sometimes. <laughs> yeah, right. Once or once or twice. Now come on. Yeah. Um, but you made a completely valid point that you know, unbridled. If every beacon pings the pings the phone, then as you walk up and down Regent Street, you get 180 pings to your phone. There's no way you'd get a quarter of the way up Regent Street without switching it off because it would drive you nuts. So. Just location without intelligence is going to become old much faster than email became spam. Right. Much, much faster. I agree. I agree. So what we've done with autographs is we use the intelligence of the autograph to be able to determine only above a certain relevance score will we alert the consumer. And on average, consumers, as they're walking the full length of Regent Street past 180 doorways, are probably getting about 10 push messages it, it's generally less than that, and it's seldom, very, very seldom more than 10. And 10 feels about right. You're talking about a 5, 7, 10 block length of, length of street. So you're talking about being alerted every block, every other block. It's that kind of level. And, and consumers are actually responding very positively to it. So 
it, it's really, really important. Beacons without intelligence are just spam. I, I, I agree, and, and it's going uh, to get worse, much worse before it gets much better. I think that uh, there's going to be pushback, just like email. Hopefully it won't bankrupt yeah. the push messaging uh, system. But, um, you, you know, it, it, I want to come back to the response rate in, in a second. And, and I, I, you know, it's very interesting because you talk about malls, and especially something like Regent Street, it is a destination for shopping. Right. Yes. It's a tourist destination. Yes. But ultimately, it's a destination for shopping. If you've ever been there, you're going you're going there with intent. Right. So it's right. it's it's it is it's like a mall. So, you know, there there is an understanding of, of kind of um, this this idea that you're going to be um, not bombarded, but you're interested in buying something at that point. There's a reason you're going there. And I just want to be very specific about that. And, and, and the comments that we made in, in the episode were very clear. We talked about this all over the time. I mean, in a number of episodes and I think that that's the big the always the big concern is that that threshold so but this is a this the app that you're using for this is the Regent Street app it's not mm -hmm. the autograph app it's the Regent Street app that's yep. that's sanctioned by them and yep. so they're the ones that are marketing that they're the ones that are pushing yes. it out to their client so yes you know they have they have reach obviously um, but I mean are they how, how are they doing that is have they been effective in marketing that application f uh, on behalf of of the mall sure so it's it, you know first of all it's very early days to actually make that judgment because it's it's sure. it's been live for a matter of a few weeks yep. uh, secondly a lot of the performance data is is under nda between us and regent street so yeah. I, you know there's there's things i can talk about there's things i obviously can't um, but at the end of the day, yes, Regent Street promotes it um, through the retailers. It promotes it on signage. It promotes it at events, um, and we are able to, you know, see what goes on at Regent Street. Uh, we're able to actually get uh, downloads and, and and to make that happen. One of the things that we found very interesting is that if we look across all of our applications, um, broadly, just over half of the application downloads. Uh, just around a half of the application downloads come. We know for for reasons I can't explain, but but I I I I I know, but I can't explain to you because it's 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 confidential. But we know that these are actually word of mouth and social uh, uh, propagation. So this is this is absolutely not uh, directly through the the promotion, and we're seeing the same thing in these retail applications. Very so, interesting. Um, and one of the other ones is is in our retail applications, we're finding that just over sixty percent of the use of the application is nowhere near the mall. <laughs> this is people planning trips to the mall. So you made a point a little bit earlier about you know yeah, but can you drive people? Can you drive footfall? Well, the answer is in sixty percent of the cases we are driving footfall because those are people planning a trip. They're making a determination of where to go based on what kind of deals or what kind that of opportunity. That is correct. And just to clarify a few things, um, Henry, you can tell me anything because nobody listens to this show. It's just you and I. <laughs> so <laughs> it's okay. Now, you know full well that's not true. Yeah, you know, your, your confidentiality agreement is it fine by talking. <laughs> uh, but you can say that the response rate, like, so that's one of the, one of the key things, right? For, for these retailers, they, you know, they're under siege, right? And I think that that's the, the best way that I can think about it is that, so anything that drives measurable traffic and activity in their stores, they're willing to give it a try. How, how receptive were they to being told? Like, this is an interesting concept, right? It is a mall, but these are big brands that own clout, but the mall supersedes the brands. What, what yep. was that conversation like walking into some of these huge retailers and saying, no, we're doing this? Right. It's this is this is what we're doing. Was it confrontational? Were, were they on board? Were there any challenges with that? Um, 
so uh, three stages to that question. <laughs> so, 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 so the first one is some of those, some of the retailers are controlled centrally yeah. by by a head office, not anywhere related to to to, to where we're dealing, and and, uh, and you know about a quarter like that, and then three quarters are controlled by store managers. Um, I think I think we're at a hundred percent, and if it's not, it's very close to that. Of the store managers, turn around and say, "Anything that builds my business is great. Where do you want? Where do you want to do this?" And to the extent that any of them had reluctance, as soon as they saw how straightforward the beacon installation is, mm-hmm. uh, i.e., that it doesn't need to be plugged into an internet connection or a power socket or any of those things, it made a huge difference. It was it was very straightforward. Um, being a a grade one preservation area in London. It was built in 1826 by the king, as we said. Uh, then we actually painted the beacons uh, a number of different colours to make sure that they blended in perfectly. Wow. So it is all but impossible to actually see where the beacon is, even though the beacon has line of sight out onto the 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 the, the, the sidewalk outside. So you know, first of all, you, you know, the, the the managers of the stores are very receptive. The managers of the stores then go to the head offices in the other quarter, and the vast majority of those turn around and said, "Yes, let's do that." Um, there was one case, and I can't declare who it is, but it is a technology company uh, who were very embarrassed by the fact that the we had actually beaconed their store before they beaconed their store, and given that they were making a whole big play about having beacons in their stores. Uh, we 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 kind of caught them out slightly, but uh, we've got a very good relationship with them, which is why I'm not saying who it is. <laughs> that's very that's that's hysterical. Yeah, yeah. So so generally, the response was was fine. Was there an awareness of what the beacons were? Did they know uh, what was going on? Yes, and 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 then what happens is you get these, um, you know, the Regent Street Association or the Westfield Marketing Area, who then hold retailer days to actually explain what they're doing and what their strategy is around events, but also around digital technology, and 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 they were had it completely explained to them. So, to the extent they were reluctant before, then after they'd actually had explained to them what this could do, that that um, reluctance went away. What, what about the maintenance on these? You said they don't have to be plugged in now, so you know the battery yeah. battery's not going to last forever. Um, so right. what, what happens? What happens with when these things start to fail? So um, well, they don't fail. The battery might run out. Yeah. Um, and actually, our our projected battery life is is two years, and we we have a we have a maintenance program to actually replace the batteries in the in the um, in the beacons uh, on a periodic basis. Okay. To make sure that they're always up and running. I always have that. I always have that fear because it's battery powered, and it, I guess it depends on how what you're broadcasting and receiving, and how often you're doing that in the distance. I mean, it, it, it affects the battery life, and and I think that's the only limitation about the beacons is that you know when you do a mass deployment, you also have to think about okay, so what's the upkeep when when a battery dies yeah. early? Pre, you know, uh, presumably you've got people in there that can just go and swap out, repaint, retouch, swap the battery, and then yes. and then go. Yes. Well, I think I th- yeah. I mean, I think you know what what you do is you is you basically say right. The expected battery life is this. We're checking it on a periodic basis. Anyway, checking they're all performing properly on a periodic basis. But then we will have a battery swap out uh, at at a given time right. and just and just go through the, the the maintenance crew will go through. But that's yeah. It's relatively it's it's to to replace one hundred and eighty beacons is probably a couple of days. It's innocuous. I I, I know that. But I mean, that, those are the those are the challenges today. And and I mean, in two years from now. Yeah. You know, there's going to be a new crop of beacons that are smaller, lighter. You know, uh, powered by the airwaves or uh, you know Wi-Fi networks. Um, yep. So that yep. you're not going to need the batteries at all. What about who, who yep. pays for this? Who 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 was it? The Regent Street 
that paid for everything here to all the beacons, the app development, uh, right. who, who, who covers the cost? And how do you guys, finally, I'm gonna ask that question, how do you guys make money? So who pays so for it and how do you make money? So our business model is very straightforward. The, the answer to the question is uh, the for us, the licensee pays and the licensee in this case Regent is Regent Street. Street. Okay. Um, but we have a very simple business model is that we charge per active user in a given calendar month. So if a, if a consumer comes onto Regent Street every week, we would be charging 12 times for that. Um, but it, and, and actually we end up paying for a quarter. So, um, but, but actually in practice, uh, if the person only comes at Christmas, then we will only get one license fee. So it's, 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 it's license fee on a periodic basis. Okay, and that scales well. And so Regent Street pays, yeah. these, these uh, retailers will benefit obviously because uh, you have, you, the response has been good. I know you probably can't give me an exact response rate because it's too early, but, but yeah. they, they are satisfied with the way that things are turning out so far? So far, so far, yes. And, 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 and you know, we are, we are um, uh, I mean, what I can tell you about response rates is that on, on average, uh, our response rates vary from six times to 52 times what the customer was doing before. Wow. Whether that was, you know, untargeted email campaigns at the 52 times end, so we're 52 times better than that, <laughs> yes. to 10 times what a credit card issuer actually has in the spend graph on that particular customer, which is incredibly invasive, incidentally, if yeah. you actually think about the fact that somebody's putting an algorithm all over what you've spent on your credit card, yes. down, to, down to about the lowest we've seen is about six times for some, uh, for some applications. But that's six times, not 6%. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, six a, you know, times. it's a very, very strong uplift. And the reason for that is, number one, because the data's better because it's been validated by the consumer. But the second one is the level of trust of the consumer is much higher because the consumer knows where the data's come from mm -hmm. and knows that they can alter it at any time. So you build that bond of trust with the consumer and suddenly you're in a different, in a very different place. I, you know, I love the approach and, and um, I certainly love the, the way that this, this lays out and I love the, the target that you guys are going after, which are the mall owners, as opposed to the individual retailers, of the, or the because uh, that's how that's the only way this is going to work, right? I, I right. honestly believe that. Right. Um, you know, and and we're emerging now into this beacon world. At least we're trying to, right? Uh, with uh, with the latest iPhone, uh, we're starting to see uh, low energy Bluetooth permeate uh, a lot of yep. the stores, and you know, external devices are are now yep. um, uh, equipped with it. Where do you, like, you're right in the middle of this? Um, how central a thing is Beacon? Are Beacons going to be in retail, and and uh, or, or are they just going to be that that the way that you guys are using them, which is the kind of the the lighthouse, as you say, the identification, the notification, the the, yep. the simple push. Where do you think Beacons go? So I I, I mean we we've got a couple of views on it. The first is that we think that Beacons have a, an enormous amount to go because they are so passive, and um, while there is an issue that a certain number of people don't put Bluetooth on, the reality is that number is quite small mm -hmm. um, and becoming increasingly small because accessories are being used more often. Um, you know, I'm sitting here with my, my up band on, well that's communicating with my phone, there you go, we're yeah. communicating with my phone by Bluetooth and therefore I have Bluetooth switched on on my phone of course. Um, so you know, there, there, is, there is an issue there but, but that, that's, that, that problem is going away increasingly. Um, uh, what you find is that, is that beacons are First of all, becoming just you know, many, many more places. Um, but what we're also finding is that, is that um, the retailers sort of understand that they need to do beacons, but they don't fully understand why yet. 
and so we're working very hard on 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 actually how to how to you know what benefits come from it uh, where's it going well for us we're not really a beaconing company right remember beaconing for us is just instrumenting the physical world what we are is um, a, a personalization company based on what the consumer wants to personalize and that you know it's really important to draw that distinction we're the intelligence around the beacons not the beacons themselves we are we'd be delighted if a retailer was completely beaconed up already to provide something that actually gained benefit from those beacons that they've already installed so hey, uh, but that's the best place to be beacons are a commodity you don't want to be in that business like once correct. they're installed you want to be the intelligence the layer on top of the beacons that actually adds value to the business right correct. so it drives new business identifies people there's a staggering statistic i think it was the boston retail group said that that retailers today only know three percent of their customers that walk through the door know anything about just yep. three percent of the customers that walk through the door yep. so yep. that that's where you know it, it, it's okay to have beacons you know they're walking through the door but it's a layer on top of that that you want to be right. able to enable the intelligence and it, it's not about privacy it's not about knowing your name or your phone number or anything like that like we've talked about it's about knowing a preference knowing a trigger that will enable right. them to have a good experience in the store that leads them to purchase something and leads them to walk out and then come back the next time they're looking for that product right correct yeah. correct and, and, you know, remember that, that in uh, the case of Regent Street, we never ask for uh, a phone number or an email address. You are completely anonymous using that application. But you're anonymous, but the autograph inside the application knows your preferences. It doesn't know anything about all that horrible information about, you know, your, your home zip code or postcode or your, or your any of the, knows none of those things. Um, it just knows what you want. Because one of the crucial things is the way in which people behave and their biological data are not necessarily the same. Men don't just buy men's stuff. Right. Women don't just buy women's stuff. Uh, men, in their, men in a given age group don't always behave like other men in their age group. Right. You know? Sometimes I behave more like my 23-year-old son, and sometimes I may behave more like my mother-in-law. You know, I just... <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but, but there are times when I'm doing each of those. Um, but but it's it's biological biological age and gender are not necessarily great targeting criteria, and yet the industry, the marketing industry, has based itself around that for a very long time. We move way beyond that because everything that we're doing is behavioural and, right. and 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 validated by the consumer. So amazing! And just for the record, I always act like my seven-year-old sons. One hundred percent. My wife says the same thing about me. Don't okay. worry. <laughs> without shadow of a doubt, I, I, there's no stretch here. Seven years old, right here. Right. Um, right. I, and I like the way that you say that. Is that uh, you know, especially when it comes to these guys, it, it's about driving footfall. It's dri about driving sales. And and you know, emails and all that kind of stuff happens with trust. And in yep. order to generate trust, you have to generate uh, you know a, a likelihood that they're going to walk into the store and have a good experience. And then then everything else falls from that. So I, you know, I, right. I, I appreciate that distinction that you've had. All right, my last question here, if you can believe it, Henry, we've only been talking about for four hours. Um, what is the thing that has most surprised you in this whole experience with working with Regent Street or even, you know, taking it up a level um, over the last three years with Autograph? Uh, what is the thing that you that you never expected to happen? Um, I think the overall one is we kind of knew that we were going to be able to get great data. What we never could be sure of is how the consumer was going to respond to this. And so I think the surprise has been because, you know, we can, our data science team can actually tell you 
how much of the uplift in performance is due to us having better data. And, you know, there's a proportion of it that is that, of course. But what I hadn't realized was the bonus that you get from trust, the bonus that you get from the consumer actually trusting you because you've, you've, you've laid, as, as the marketer, you've laid it out there and you've said, here's your data. We are trusted. We're treating you like an adult. You know, we're treating you maybe not like your seven-year-old sons, <laughs> but we're treating your old, you know, maybe like my 20-year-old son, but we're treating you as, a, as an adult. Here is the data. And we will take the risk that you could opt out and delete the whole lot, or you could, or you could add to it. And what we found consistently is that people add something between 10 and 15 times more frequently than they delete. And as a result of that, we actually end up with this amazing profile. But the crucial thing is we didn't realize the trust bonus was there. When you do that, you get a, a bonus of trust from the customer that, that, is, that is just huge and comes for free. It comes for free. But there is a generation. It's very interesting. There's a generation of marketers. We deal with you know, CEOs uh, of, of all sorts of different companies. There's a generation of relatively junior marketers who've grown up just inside the digital world and don't completely get that. There's actually this senior level I was describing of CEOs and CMOs who say we're not quite getting the results that we were looking for. Whereas there's a, there's a level of junior marketers who sit and say, okay, well, that's, you know, 0 0.07. Okay, well, if we get 0 0.08, that's not bad. Exactly. Um, whereas, whereas actually there's a senior level of marketer who sits there and says, wait a minute. And, and that's it. We, we think that that point of view is actually growing significantly. Thankfully. And that's, in, that's endorsed by, you know, Apple buying Beats. Yeah. Why did Apple buy Beats? It wasn't because they make cool headphones, because right. Apple could make cool headphones if they wanted to. They bought it because it's got a consumer-curated feed, not an algorithmically-curated feed. Tim Cook concluded algorithms had reached the end of their life in making music recommendations. The next step is to go to consumers, and we're doing exactly the same thing, not just in music, but across the whole range. It's exactly why Google bought songs, though, right? The same thing, human Bing. curation, right? Bing, correct. Human curation. It's, it's why Netflix is is is, is so popular. You know, it it's is. all those things. And, and you know, it started with a base of an algorithm, but all that data that goes into it is the most important thing, right? You have to know what to yes. do with the data. So, um, yep. and I, I'm I'm spellbound by what you guys are doing. I can't wait to see the rollouts that happen. Thank you. I can't Thank wait you. for you to come to Canada so I can give it a try. Hey, listen, we'd love to do a Canadian installation. There, there were, we have actually got some conversations going on. Um, well, you absolutely should. Uh, you know, the Eaton Center in Toronto is the biggest, uh, you know, or, or uh, you know, is one of the biggest. Uh, I think it's the second largest mall in Canada. And, and um, that would be ideal for something like this. Yes. Uh, hint, 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 yeah. hint. Uh, All right. Great. So, Henry, where should we send people to find out more information? Aside from this episode, where should we send people to find more information about you guys? So, uh, autograph.me is our, is our website. Please yep. come on to that. There are case studies on there. You'll find case studies. You'll find all sorts of other information. Um, and watch this space on Untethered uh, as, well, as well as other places. You know, I, I, I would implore anybody who's out there that has used the application on Regent Street or anywhere, please reach out. I will have you on and we can talk about your experience uh, around using this tool and how yeah. it influenced you in order to be able to, uh, you know, make purchases that maybe you wouldn't have or, or the other way around. I would love to hear and have that conversation. So if you're listening to this and you've used this application and you don't work for Autograph, um, Please reach yep. out, Rob at Untether.tv. I think Henry will be very interested in that as well. I'd, uh, I'd love, love to hear from him. I, I think it would be fascinating to do that. So please reach out. 
Henry, thank you for doing this. I can't thank you enough for being so open and, and honest and, and candid around uh, around what you guys have been doing with the company, not only Autograph, but also with uh, with Regent Street and your other clients. I, I really appreciate uh, you doing this. It's been fascinating. I'm, I'm spellbound by what you're doing. It's been a pleasure. Lovely talking to you. Oh, man. We've been speaking Thanks. with Henry Lawson, who is the CEO of Autograph. Go to autograph.me exactly as it sounds. And again, if you have used the application uh, on Regent Street, please reach out to me at rob at untether.tv. You guys out there listening, wherever you are, maybe you're walking down Regent Street right now. I don't know. But if you're listening this far into the episode, I can't thank you enough for making it. Thank you so much for being a part of untether.tv. Henry, thank you for being on the show. We'll see you guys next time.